queens, welcome to Dose of Deception with the queens of queens, Shannon and Emily. Join our true crime family where we discuss murders, missing persons cases, mysteries, and a whole lot of conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the wild ride. Hey queens, welcome back to Dose of Deception. Before we start our episode today, if you're a new listener, we want to let you know what we do here on this show. In the first half, Emily comes in with a true crime topic, whether it be a missing persons case, a murder mystery, and then in the second half, I come in with a conspiracy theory that we like to discuss. Also, we just want to let you know what our social media accounts are. We have an Instagram, at Dose of Deception, and our Facebook group is also at Dose of Deception. So, Emily, what are we talking about this week? So, this week we're going to be talking about the disturbing murder of Elizabeth Short, better known as Black Dahlia. Mm, I'm excited for this one. This is one of the only ones that I have any sort of background information <laughs> on, so I'm excited about knowing one for once. <laughs> so, Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Massachusetts. She was the third of five daughters, and her parents were Cleo and Phoebe Short. When Short was only around five years old, her father lost their life savings during the 1929 stock market crash, and they went broke. Only a year later, in 1930, Cleo's car was found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge, and both authorities and the Short family believed that he committed suicide, which was triggered by the financial stress of the stock market crash. Phoebe then relocated her five daughters to a small apartment in Medford, Massachusetts, working as a bookkeeper to try and support the family single-handedly after losing so much money and, she believes, her husband. When Elizabeth was just 15 years old, Phoebe sent her to Miami to live with Phoebe's friends, as requested by Elizabeth's doctor. Elizabeth suffered badly with bronchitis, and she also had very severe asthma. And after undergoing lung surgery because of all the damage that was caused, living in cold climates and, you know, Massachusetts... Her doctor suggested that a milder climate would benefit her greatly. Mm. So for three years, from when she was 15 to 18 years old, Elizabeth spent winters in Miami, and during the warmer months, she went back to Medford, Massachusetts, to live with her mom and her four sisters. She did drop out of Medford High School when she was just a sophomore, and she had trouble with her grades and everything, Mm -hmm. but I think she got back on her feet kind of in her later years of high school, and she was doing good again. Okay. Remember how I mentioned that Elizabeth's father committed suicide? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in 1942, he writes a letter to Phoebe, basically saying, Psych, I'm still alive. Uh, I left you alone with the five kids, no money. Faked my own suicide, because he was tired of being a family man kind of lifestyle. And he actually relocated to California, and he'd been living there for 12 years, pretty much. I hate people. I know. (laughs) I'm so messed up. So after only three years living in Miami, 18-year-old Elizabeth wanted a more exciting life. She also had dreams um, of being an actress. Okay. So what better place to go to California? Yeah. And she also said, oh, my dad lives in California. So her idea was to just stay with him. I would never be able to reunite. I would be so bitter I, I wouldn't be able to go reunite with him. So I would I. I live with him. Yeah, I'd be very upset. Mm. In December of that year, Elizabeth relocated to Vallejo, California to live with her father, Cleo, who she had not seen since she was six years old. And now she was 18. Mm. I forgot. I didn't even register that there's that much of a time difference Yeah, it's crazy. Not much is said about their relationship between Elizabeth and Cleo, but it was definitely not healthy because Elizabeth ends up moving out only a month later in January 1943. Mm. And from what I've read, Cleo wanted a maid and sort of a makeshift housewife out of Elizabeth. Uh, uh, yeah, he, he wanted... I mean, he was... Um, the, the the agreement was that she would clean and everything for him. The, I mean, I guess that's there, fair. Which of, makes like, sense. Yeah. Um, however, he he kind of expected her all the time to be kind of like a housewife. Yeah. And she wanted to go out and explore uh, California. And like, you know, she was young. She wanted yeah. to make friends, go out. and That's literally why she went. Exactly. And also try to become an actress, which mm-hmm. she was not exactly cool with. Mm-hmm. 
So after she left her dad's place, Elizabeth was homeless, and she immediately began searching for a job. She was eventually hired at the base exchange at Camp Cook near Santa Barbara, California. I think she was a camp counselor. Okay. So she actually worked there for uh, nine months, and she was living with different friends, like, from time to time. Yeah. In one part, she was also living with an Army Air Force sergeant, but he was very emotionally and physically abusive to her, so it was just unhealthy the way that she was living. Yeah. She didn't have a stable environment. Mm-hmm. She was arrested in Santa Barbara on September 23rd, 1943, because she was at a bar and she was underage drinking. Mm. Again, I didn't even realize how young she was when I she know. was doing all this. Yeah. But she did not get in serious trouble for this, and authorities actually returned her to her mother in Medford, Massachusetts, oh. because they realized that she was so young and she didn't really have a good uh, support system yeah. in California, so they kind of just felt bad for her and just sent her back home. Yeah. And also... Uh, she did have a lot of friends there, but they were all older than her, and they were kind of taking advantage of her a lot of the time. So um, they just sent her back home. She then returned to Florida once again, though. It was here that she met her fiancé, Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., who was in the Air Force. While deployed in China during World War II, Matthew proposed to Elizabeth in a letter that he wrote, Hmm. and she accepted. I love that old stuff. It's such a random tangent. But, like, every time I see those stories, they're, like, soldiers, like, sending love letters back home, it makes me teary. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, on August 10th, 1945, while fighting in the war, Matthew died in a plane crash before Mm. he could get back home and marry Elizabeth. Uh, And this was very traumatic for Elizabeth. Uh, And she also felt now that she had no reason to stay in Florida. So she wanted to go somewhere else and start fresh. Fair. Like I said earlier, too, she did have dreams of being an actress. And she moved to L.A. in July 1946. She initially went to L.A. to visit Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who she knew from Florida. Okay. So he was stationed in Long Beach at the time, but she ended up just falling in love with L.A., uh, wanting to live out the American dream. Yeah. So she was living in uh, L.A. for the last six months of her life. Mm-hmm. Here, she worked as a waitress, and she rented a room on Hollywood Boulevard. The most eerie part of this case for me when researching... So this is all word of mouth. It's it's all hearsay because okay. there was not a lot of cameras in the 1940s. Yeah. So this is just people who witness seeing Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. But it was creepy because the last, one of the last known places that she was staying, according to eyewitness reports, was the Cecil Hotel. Oh, here we go. Here we <laughs> go. If you remember last season, Elisa Lamb was the one who died in the Cecil Hotel. Also, I haven't watched it yet, but there's the I new special it. on Netflix about it, and I saw it and immediately was like, we have to watch this. <laughs> we have to talk about it. I haven't seen it yet. You watched it? Well, I watched the first two episodes. There's four. Yeah. It's good? Yeah. Because I also saw that Elisa Lamb has, I don't know if she has a full episode. You but know, there's four episodes, I think, about Elisa. Really? Yeah, you should watch yeah, it. I'm excited. I want to see it. We should watch it together. We should. Okay, we will. Anyway, side <laughs> note. So if you want to check that out, because apparently we're probably going to be talking about a million cases that end up at that hotel because everything seems to be happening Yeah, this it's place. insane. And also Richard Ramirez, a serial killer. Yes. He uh, lived at the Cecil Hotel. That's and insane. There's, yeah, there's just a long list of creepy stuff that was going on. So the fact that she may have been there in the last few weeks of her life is very suspicious. Yeah. Right before Elizabeth went missing, she returned home from San Diego from a small vacation that she was taking with 25-year-old Robert Manley, who goes by Red. Now, Red is a married guy, but he was also dating Elizabeth. Don't mm. like... I really don't like that. Mm. <laughs> as soon as... I don't know why. You said his name, instantly my face squinched up, and I was like, <laughs> mm, don't trust this guy. <laughs> well, yes, they were on vacation together for the weekend, um, mm-hmm. and he says that on January 9th, 1947... He dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A. because she told him that her sister was coming from Boston to visit. Okay. Now, 
I do not believe that her sister actually came to visit. Nobody knows what was going on there. However, the hostel, the hotel staff did back this up, or did back right up at least, okay. and said that she was seen at a bar located only 0.4 miles from the Biltmore Hotel uh, okay. after that. So she, it's pretty widely believed that he genuinely did yeah. drop her off there. He did genuinely. It was just the wrong place at the wrong time, because yeah. then she went missing right after. Yeah. So from January 9th until January 15th, nobody knew where Elizabeth was. Mm. Uh, when I get into the suspects a little bit later, I'll talk about theories about her disappearance or okay. about uh, eyewitness reports of people mm-hmm. seeing her. However, for that whole entire week, just nobody knew what happened to her. Was she, like, reported missing or anything like that? No. Well, I mean, I guess that's fair. She didn't live with anybody. Yeah, she, she didn't. Like, no. Was I just mean, a visitor there and just had friends. So yeah, her friends weird. noticed, but it wasn't, like, officially yeah. a thing. So in the early morning hours of January 15th, 1947, Betty Berzinger was on a morning stroll with her three-year-old daughter. At 10 a.m., the child pointed to something strange lying on the ground oh, God. in Limert Park in Los Angeles. Now, Betty initially thought this was a store mannequin because of the condition of the body, which I will get into. Um, so she honestly, at first, she didn't think anything of it. However, she looked closer and kind of checked it out, and then she immediately ran to, or she grabbed her daughter and immediately ran to a nearby house to try and call 911. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play an interview with Betty that happened shortly after she discovered the body. And uh, as I was walking along, I happened to glance over at my side, and I saw this uh, uh, strange sight. It uh, It looked like a mannequin that had been cut in half and was separated and was lying there. And I didn't glance at it too long because I had my little girl with me and I thought, gosh, as I walked on further, I thought, you know, that just didn't seem right to me. And I thought, I could see these kids with their bicycles. I said, maybe it'll scare those kids if they ride to school and see this. So I better, uh, uh, you know, call somebody to come and at least have a look and see what it is. But I, the thought of a, a dead person did not enter my mind. I thought it was a mannequin because it was so white. I stopped at one house. Uh, when I crossed, uh, got through the block and got to the next block, there were homes built on that block. I went to the first home and there was nobody there. So then I went, think I went to the next house. I rang the doorbell and a woman came to the door and I told her, I said, you know, I said, I saw something strange up the street, and I said, I just think I ought to call somebody and have them come and look at it, you know. It's, it's, the further I walked away from them, the further I thought, well, gee, I wonder if it could be something, you know, more than just a mannequin. It just didn't seem to me that that made much sense. <laughs> so anyhow, I thought I better call and tell the police and at least have them come out and check it. And so um, she said, well, yes, use the phone. So I called them, and I had some... Buddy answers in the police station, and I told him what had happened, that I'd seen this, and uh, I said, I thought somebody ought to come out, you know, and check it out. And they said, fine, they would, and I hung up. Once authorities arrived, they did confirm the body to be Elizabeth Short, and it was severely mutilated. And there are photos of Elizabeth online, but the crime scene is so uh, troubling to look at. If you're, if you're like, squeamish to that yeah. kind of stuff, I mean... I've just seen it a lot from all the crime shows. Yeah. But if you if you've never seen it, I guess it could be uh, hard to look at. Yeah. It's odd that it was that mangled up, and she was still like, "Oh yeah, it could be a mannequin." Yeah. <laughs> it's odd to me. It's crazy. So let's get into the conditions that Elizabeth was in when she was discovered. Elizabeth was completely severed at the waist, so she was cut in two separate parts. Okay. To this, to the dismay of authorities, there was no blood at the scene. And since she was cut in half, you'd think there'd be a lot of blood. Yeah. And if you remember, Betty, when she was doing the interview, she said mm-hmm. she was very white. Yeah. That's why she thought it was a mannequin initially. 
They soon made the gruesome discovery that all of Elizabeth's blood had been drained from her body before she was placed at the scene. And that's why she was such a ghostly white color. That's disgusting. I know. It's crazy. The coroner determined that she had been killed 10 hours before she was found and that she had not been killed where she was found because her skin was darker on her stomach um, and like towards the front of her body, which indicates that she was that she died facing forward because it like gravity yeah. made it go to like her the front of her. However, uh-huh. she was found laying on her back, mm. so that indicates that somebody killed her, yeah, drained her blood, moved. and then moved her. I mean, that also makes sense because there was no blood there, so obviously yeah. she wasn't killed there. So this time frame indicates that she was most likely killed around midnight on January fifteenth. Mm. They also found that Elizabeth's body had been washed after her death. Yeah. So the perpetrator really seemed confident that they would not get caught, and they spent yeah. so much time with her. It's insane because usually. I'm assuming it was somebody who knew her, because I feel like when it's a random mm-hmm. kill, they would just kill him and then leave the scene. Agreed. This one spent so much time with her after she died. Agreed. It's crazy. Uh, Elizabeth's face was also slashed from her mouth to her ears, giving her a joker smile. <sighs> and I think in a lot of pop culture and media and stuff, that's the thing that most people know her for, is that smile. Yes, and in a lot of the TV shows, that's kind of the thing that they use to connect it. Yeah, even uh, American Horror Story. I don't know if you've that. seen that, but yeah, they like focused on the What season is that? Uh, season one. Then I have seen that. Oh, yeah, I don't even remember that happening. Yeah, she's in season one, episode nine. It's called Spooky Little Girl, and that's the episode that they, like, introduce her and talk about her. I don't... I mean, I only remember the big plot points. Yeah. But, I mean, season two is the one I actually remember and like, but... Yeah. Wait, you like the second one better? The second one's the best one. It easily. Is. <laughs> so, back to Elizabeth. Uh, big chunks of her flesh were also cut out from her thighs and then her breasts as well. Mm. So, they really just... Did a lot to her. Yeah. Uh, her lower half was placed a foot away from her upper body. And her intestines were found with the lower half of the body. So she was, like, caught and then Ugh. separated. And her legs were spread apart. And her upper half of the body was posed and her arms were bent at a 90-degree angle. So this is initially why Betty thought she was a mannequin, which makes sense to me. Um, because she's, like, posed in a way that doesn't look humanly natural. Yeah, and I guess that's true. She said she was so pale because of all the blood loss. Yeah, that's fair. And the most creepy part for me was that uh, Elizabeth's body also had a tic-tac-toe game carved into it. That's what I know. That's, like, the part of the story that I, like, remember, like, from just hearing the story before. I can't even... I was trying to theorize why, and that just doesn't make any sense to me. I... I think, like you said before, it's very obvious that this is not a random person. Yeah. There's no just random person that's out killing people would be that specific you know or like you know what i mean like you yeah. wouldn't go into that much detail for like the after she was dead part. yeah i mean i've, I've saw a lot of people theorizing that maybe it was two people who killed her because why would there be a tic-tac-toe game possibly like that's usually what two people but i don't know yeah possibly it's it, and it's a lot that happened so it would be hard to imagine that all happening in a 10 hour time span which yeah is and only person. one person yeah, yeah. The autopsy also showed that there may have been evidence that Elizabeth was raped, although it was not 100% conclusive. Mm. Many people initially believe, and to this day they still believe, that a doctor might have killed Elizabeth, mainly because the technique used to sever her body in half was a 1930s technique called hemicorporectomy, in which the body below the waist is amputated, transecting the lumbar spine. I don't really know what that means, but it just basically was a technique that they used in the 1930s that a lot of doctors would be familiar with. Like a normal person, because it was a very clean cut, I guess you can say. So, a normal person most likely wouldn't know how to do that. No, 100% a normal person wouldn't know how... I wouldn't know how to just cut a body cleanly across. Yeah. <laughs> Although Elizabeth's skull was not fractured, there was evidence of blows to her head. Mm. The official cause of death, however, which is so upsetting, it's, like, insane to me, uh, is that Eliz- Elizabeth basically bled out as a result of the lacerations to her face, meaning wow. that she was still alive when they were cutting her like that. Ugh. Isn't that That's- so sick? 
it's so sick too. Like that's the thing that killed her. Like yeah. that. Like all this terrible stuff is happening to her, and like that's yeah. what happened. And it is does make it sadder too, though, because that's probably one of the last things they did. So she's probably already very hurt and messed up before yeah, she actually died. And on top of the blood loss, they also believe that she went to shock. So she yeah. was most likely unable to move because, like, you know, shock yeah. kind of is your body just shutting down. Mm-hmm. But she was still able to feel all the pain of it. They were able to identify the body as Elizabeth's very quickly because her fingerprints were in the system after her arrest in 1943. Mm-hmm. Okay. The saddest part is that when they went to her father's house to tell him they found his daughter, he answered the door drunk and angry, and he told them that he did not care if she was dead and he would not be going to the coroner's office to identify her body. He just didn't care about her. I Obviously, he left for 12 years, so. Yeah, I hate that guy. Me too. <laughs> Authorities then had no choice but to call Phoebe back in Massachusetts, and immediately she bought a ticket to L.A., so luckily Elizabeth had somebody who was going to go, you know, identify her body at least and plan a funeral. Mm -hmm. What pissed me off when researching this case, though, was how much they sexualized Elizabeth Mm -hmm. after her murder. Because before her murder, they sexualized her so much, and even though American Horror Story is my favorite show... They did overly sexualize her, in my opinion. And, you know, she was engaged, remember, to the guy who died in World War II? Yes. So, Elizabeth, she... They painted her out to be this actress who would, like, sleep with people to get to the top. And that was not her at all. All she wanted was a private life, a family. She wanted to, like, get married and just have, like, a personal life. And it's it's frustrating that even after her death, they sexualized her. Well, they probably just pinned her as... If you if she they knew that she wanted to be an actress that's yeah. such an easy stereotype and generalization for them to make definitely and she was nicknamed the black dahlia by the media because she was wearing lacy black underwear at the time of her murder that's disgusting so th- yeah it is and what? she also yeah no she also wore a flower in her hair a lot and it was uh her hair was like a dark brown color so they made it like sexy that's so stupid yeah and annoying just identify her by her name mm-hmm. like she has a name you don't need to make something of it just to... It's very similar... I mean, not similar to Eileen, but, like, similar in the way that they're just trying to bank off of Yeah, it. exactly. The way that the newspapers wrote about her also was very frustrating. Uh, they focused on her tight skirt and sheer blouse, which she was last seen wearing, and they said that she was an adventurist who prowled the streets of L.A. And since she was found naked, media deemed this a sex fiend slaying as well, uh, which is so upsetting to her family, too. Imagine that? Yeah, like... Like you said, too, like, they don't even know if there was, or if she was raped or anything like that. So this was just a girl getting murdered. Mm -hmm. That's what it should have been labeled as and treated as, not something that it wasn't. And also, it kind of reminds me of the way they sexualized Marilyn Monroe. A hundred percent, yes. That bothers me, too. It's a lot like that. Yeah. As a result of the media coverage this case received, people were turning themselves in left and right, trying to convince police that they murdered Elizabeth so that they could get popular and get attention, even though they'd be going life in jail, most likely. Yeah, Yeah, and over 60 people, who were mostly men, confessed Mm -hmm. to the murder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine how difficult it was for authorities to know who had genuine information about Elizabeth and who was just seeking attention. Yeah, Yeah, that probably made the investigation impossible. It did. It took a while for them to get through all of them, because they had to take everything seriously. Yeah, of course. And interview every single person. Mm. Among all these frauds, one individual stood out. To this day, we do not know who was behind this, but a manila envelope was found on January 24th that was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner, and it read, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. And inside was actually Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, her photos, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the front. Mm, okay. So they actually had her stuff. This wasn't just a random person. Yeah. Police tracked down Mark Hansen and confirmed that Elizabeth had stayed with him and a few other friends. He was a nightclub owner who used his money and status to prey on young women who had no real home or financial stability. Okay. So he allowed them to stay at his place for just 
like one dollar or like a really cheap price mm-hmm. uh, for each night, and they worked as waitresses in his nightclub. So she was a waitress and she was working with him. Okay. It was known that he would expect sexual favors in return for his kindness, and if they didn't did not return them, he would often kick them out. So basically, the woman had to choose between having a home and yeah. like sleeping with him or just being homeless. Mm-hmm. So her friends admitted that Elizabeth had recently rejected his sexual advances, and he confirmed that the shoes and bag found in the alleys were Elizabeth's. However, after extensive questioning, he was no longer a suspect, which is strange to me because it was very known that she would not sleep with him, even just for a place to stay. I have no idea how he's not a suspect. I know. I mean, they, they really questioned a lot of these people, like, really in-depth, though, so... I mean, if this stuff, though, was his belongings, then who got a hold of those belongings to send yeah i don't know who else would have sent that stuff in if it's literally his address book yeah i mean when i go talk about the suspects which i'm going to do next i do go more in depth into him so i think i think he still he could still be a suspect but in terms of the authorities they don't view him as somebody who could have killed her all right so let's get into (laughs) the suspects now uh, there were a lot of them, and as I mentioned, there were roughly 16, 60 confessions, and 17 of them were taken seriously. Okay. So I'm not going to discuss all 17. You can find, a, like, an extensive list with all of yeah. them on it, but I'll only be discussing the ones that I feel are most prominent and probable. Yeah. So the first one, obviously, is Mark Hansen. Um, witnesses claim that Mark was one of the last people to see Elizabeth before she disappeared, and it is believed that, because she did not want to do anything sexual with him, she would roam around for a few days, but then go back to Mark's place to stay and kind of... Give him false hope, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he might have grown frustrated with her antics and her lack of interest in him and murdered her. And since there was also evidence of Elizabeth being raped, it would make sense. Witnesses claim that the final time anyone saw Elizabeth, she was leaving the Biltmore Hotel on Olive Street around 10 p.m. And this was on January 9th, 1947. People said that she waved at a dark figure out the window before turning and walking down Olive Street, never to be seen again. Could this dark figure have been Mark? It's plausible. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Like, he could have easily have followed her, and since she knew him, he could have just walked with her and it wouldn't have been suspicious. Yeah, and she wouldn't have ran or she wouldn't have tried to get help or anything like that because she knows who he is. Yeah. Also, because Mark is very wealthy and powerful, uh, members of the LAPD would often attend his extravagant parties that he threw in his Hollywood home. Of course. So, them saying it's not... Them saying that he's not a suspect anymore... Still suspicious. Yeah, it's still suspicious to me because he could have easily paid people off and covered it up. 100%. The next suspect goes hand-in-hand with Mark Hansen. Many people believe that Mark probably killed Elizabeth, potentially, but since he had no surgical training and authorities believe whoever, you know, cut her up, uh, definitely had surgical training, they believe that Mark left this job for somebody else. There was a man named Leslie Dillon who previously worked in a funeral home as a mortician's assistant. Mm. He was 27 years old at the time, and he did work as a bellhop in the area, possibly having strong connections with Mark. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Leslie began writing letters to the LAPD's psychiatrist, saying that he thought about murder an an unhealthy amount, and he was a sexual sadist. When DeRiver asked to meet with Leslie, he agreed and said that his friend Jeff Connors was actually the one who killed Elizabeth. At first, authorities thought Jeff Connors was an alias he gave himself to alleviate guilt. However, on January 11th, they actually found Jeff Connors, whose real name was Artie Lane. There's a lot of names going around. Mm -hmm. It turned out that Artie worked as a janitor at Columbia Studios, a place Elizabeth frequently hung out in hopes of being noticed and getting acting jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's widely believed by many people that all three men, Hanson, Dylan, and Lane, all somehow took part in murdering and disposing Elizabeth's body. Uh, however, there's no hard evidence for this. They just kind of have random connections to each other. Yeah. So there's no hard evidence, but it would make sense that um, one person, like you were saying before, it doesn't seem like one person could do all this. Yeah, I agree. So that would make sense. I mean, 
So the it's basically that Mark, right? So it's the person that she lived with frequently. Yeah, Mark, yeah. Maybe he killed her and then got the other two, like, involved because he didn't know, like, what to do after that. Yeah, maybe. It's possible. But there's really no evidence. Yeah. That's I, why he's not a suspect anymore. I know, but... Just because there's no evidence. <laughs> I mean, there's no concrete evidence. Concrete, but yeah. In Circumstantial. In these cases, there's no, like, concrete evidence. So yeah. You kind of just have to go by gut. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously not to arrest him, <laughs> but, like, just so, like, to further figure it out. Like, that's the best you can do. Now, although he's not viewed as a suspect anymore, I thought it was important to mention Robert Manley, okay. called Red. Because uh, Red was the last person to officially hang out with Elizabeth Short before her disappearance, since they did go on the weekend getaway beforehand. Oh, yes. Yes, it was this guy. <laughs> However, he was very cooperative with authorities, and he was willing to take as many polygraphs as they asked. Plus, there's eyewitness accounts of Elizabeth after he dropped her off. Yeah. So, it's obviously, it's not hard evidence. And I do believe he's telling the truth about not knowing anything. Yeah, he's not super suspicious, and there's such a time gap in between. Definitely. That I don't really view of course you have to question him and stuff like that but i don't really view him as the main suspect or anything yeah. like that now the next suspect that i want to discuss is the one that i believe most likely killed elizabeth short mm, okay so this is george hodell okay now the reason why i believe it is because his son steve hodell wrote a best-selling novel called black dahlia avenger in which he strongly believes that his father george murdered elizabeth and this was not just for publicity, because I feel like sometimes people write books just for yeah, attention. Yeah, for sure. That was literally my first thought. At first yeah. I was like, oh yeah, of course, like, it's legit, it's his son. But then I'm like, mm, people yeah. might just make money. No, but he actually um, goes into it, because there is a really great interview done, uh, and I'll link that also in the description box. Uh-huh. But he really goes into depth about how he talked to his sister about it, and then once he found out more about his dad, he mm-hmm. researched himself. Mm-hmm. So he did all the researching himself. It wasn't like he just randomly came up with this theory. Yeah. Steve does say that it's very hard to accept his idea that his dad killed Elizabeth because he actually lived with him for the final 10 years of George's life, and he never knew anything, until Steve's own sister told him that she believed her dad killed Elizabeth. However, in 2013, Steve had the soil behind their house tested, and it came back positive for human remains, but it did not, it was not able to identify whose remains. Mm. So that's sketch. Either yeah. way, I think he did something. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, there was some kind of dead body, whether it was Elizabeth or not. Yeah. <laughs> he then went dab- down a rabbit hole, researching and finding evidence, and he confidently believes to this day that George is the murderer. Let's get into who George Hodel is. So George was a physician, and Steve mm-hmm. believes that Elizabeth was one of his patients. Doctor. Doctor, I know. This would explain why the cuts to Elizabeth's body post-mortem appeared to have been done professionally. Mm-hmm. George's 14-year-old daughter accused him of mol- and this was also uh steve's sister who said all this okay so she accused him of molesting her but he was acquitted in 1949 despite three witnesses saying that he saw him raping her i hate the justice system but Me whatever too. that's another story for another time <laughs> suspiciously george's secretary ruth spaulding overdosed in 1945 mm. and george was right there by her side as she died mm. some of the papers that she had were burned and although authorities dismissed this uh and believe that she burned them herself they did believe that these papers were evidence that Ruth wanted to expose of George, quote, intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for lab tests, medical treatment, and prescriptions that aren't needed. Mm, Sketch. Okay. Authorities bugged George's home, and this is one of the quotes from the conversations that they overheard on February 18th, 1950. So he says, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. And this was when his house was bugged, so he didn't really know it was in there. Yeah. So it's not like he would have been saying something random. Yeah. 
Mm. I mean, all that says is that, I mean, that obviously gives more evidence to I killed the secretary than yeah. I killed um, Elizabeth. Yeah. But still, why even bring her up? What, does she have anything to do with anything? Why are you talking about that? <laughs> yeah, that is sketchy. <laughs> now, that's, like, all I was going to get into with him, but I will link the interview because it was a long one. It was, like, yeah. an hour long. Uh, it was really in-depth, and he goes into all the evidence that he found, too, about it. Yeah, I mean, he's the most, like, obvious yeah. of the suspects so far that you've said. Yeah, and he's, like, the last main suspect. Okay. The other one is just some people believe that it could have been a female killer. Oh, um, which okay. a lot of people didn't think at first. Okay. Because a woman named Christine came forward to police saying that Elizabeth was living with her at the time of her murder. They met at a bar in Hollywood and they were lovers, but this was 1950s or 40s, so they had to keep it under wraps. Yeah. Uh, she said that she was drunk one night when she saw Elizabeth with another woman named Louise at a bar. Uh, she says it was a crime of passion and she snapped on Elizabeth. And authorities initially thought it was just like the other confessions where people just wanted attention. Yeah. However, Christine admitted that after she killed Elizabeth, she cut off parts of her hair and shoved it inside of her, which I don't want to get too graphic with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but authorities did find pieces of hair inside Elizabeth. So this Whoa. was interesting because the public did not know anything. I was about to say, is that information that she would have been no. able to find out? No. So this was all private information. So she, the fact uh-huh. that she said that was a little sketch. Very. Yeah. Especially since that's something the public wouldn't have just been able to know. Yeah. She couldn't just make that up. And they also found a heel print at the scene of the crime, so... Mm. Another uh, indicator that maybe it could have been a woman. Yeah. I mean, the heel print itself doesn't necessarily indicate that it was a woman, because it could have been nearby. Yeah, it could have been, like, from the day before or something. Yeah, it doesn't have to be specifically from the person that killed her, because it's from, what, where they found the body is where the heel print is? It's like a field. So that was a public place, Mm -hmm. so that could be anybody. But the hair thing is very odd. Very odd. So it makes her very suspicious. When did she say that she... Like, when did she come out and say that she did it? Uh, she can't... Well, she came out after, like, shortly after she died. Oh, okay. So, that makes it... I feel like the later on you admitted it, the more likely it was for publicity. Yeah, once you figured out that it was unsolved, you get more publicity from yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. So, that does also... I mean, I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but... Yeah. It's definitely odd. Definitely. What's I your mean, theory? I mean, the most obvious one was the guy that she was living with at the time. Mark? Yeah. Yeah. That's the most obvious, like, if you're going to pick one, (laughs) that's the guy. But because the thing's getting sent to the police. That was a sketchy part for me, too. Why was his address book with her stuff? Why would she just have that? Yeah. That's not something that she would have stolen. Mm -hmm. Why does she need that? If she's going to steal something from him, it's going to be something useful to her. She doesn't need the address book. Mm -hmm. So that makes it seem like it's his belonging that got sent. Not just hers. Yeah. But also, he, he would be an idiot to send that. So, even though it's his belongings, that means somebody must have got... Well, not all his belongings. The address book is his. So, that means somebody else got a hold of that and sent that. So, that does help the theory that it wasn't just him that would have been involved. It would have been multiple people that would have been involved. Yeah. And just, they knew that he was also involved. So, mm-hmm. they stuck his name in, maybe to frame him, so mm-hmm. that they didn't figure out that he they were a part of it or because they felt guilty or whoever it is and also because this was like 1940s and 50s mm-hmm. like the dna testing was not good yeah but i'm thinking probably there was so much dna all over her if they hung out with the body afterwards and like washed her and did all yes. this stuff and so she is buried so what i'm thinking is maybe i don't know how long you can like retest stuff for but she isn't cremated like her body is still there yeah i feel like they're I mean, even in, like, the 60s or 70s, it would have been better than what it was in the 40s and 50s. Definitely. So, I feel like she could have gotten exhumed and at least looked into. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I do want to read uh, Steve's book, Black Dahlia Avenger. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to get it on Audible and just listen to it. Because I want to I want to know all the specifics and all the evidence that he found. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the Mark was the obvious choice back then. Yeah. But it seems like he has so much evidence on it. And he's not the only one that believes it. The daughter also believes it. Yeah. Like, so many people got behind that that it's... I don't think that's a publicity sign. I don't think so. So, I'd be really interested in really finding out the details on that because that really could be a possibility yeah so let us know any of your theories uh and like i said earlier there were 17 suspects yeah so if you know anything about the other suspects that you feel like is really incriminating yeah uh, please let us know we'd love to hear it yeah this is such a popular one that i'm sure there's a lot of people that have strong opinions and viewpoints of it hey queens welcome back to the second half of this week's episode this week we're going to be talking about the philadelphia experiment okay so this is one that i actually had never heard of But it turns out it's the foundation for a lot of other theories that I like, like the Montauk Project and a lot of, like, sci-fi, like, conspiracies that are around. Now, this conspiracy is one that revolves around the U.S. Navy, and it is one that, although it's not super supported by historians and doesn't have a lot of, like, documented evidence, it's such a fun and crazy theory that if it did end up being real, it's definitely worth talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's still, like, a fun one. So even though it doesn't have a lot of evidence to back it up, it's one that's lasted for so many decades now, I think it was worth talking about. I've never heard of this. Yeah, like I said, I had literally had never heard of it before, but it really is one of the original conspiracy theories about supernatural things happening. Hmm. Now, the events that are theorized center around a Cannon-class destroyer escort ship known as the USS Eldridge. Now, like I said, this was a naval ship, and it was used during World War II. Now, the alleged events are said to have happened in July of 1943 and October 28th of 1943. Both of our cases are in the 1940s. Yeah. Right? That's a good choice. Didn't plan that. No, we didn't. (laughs) But, so, like I said, this is right in the middle of the years when the U.S. was involved in World War II, because I think they got involved in 41, and then it ended in 45. So, both events were revolved around the idea that the Navy was developing technology that would render naval ships invisible and undetectable by enemy radars, and possibly technology that would allow a naval ship or weapons to teleport. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. This was so early, too. Yes. Only 1940s. This kind of thing being possible, it's not something you would imagine, even today, let alone in the 40s. Now, like I said, this is not that it's not just able to be seen by enemy radars. It's literally that it became invisible. Now, before I say why people believe this, I'm going to get into where the theory came from in the first place. Although the events in question happened in 1943, it was not until 1955 that these theories came about. In 1955, an author and researcher named Morris K. Jessup, who spent most of his life doing odd jobs like salesman, mechanic became most well-known for his writings on extraterrestrial life and UFO sightings. Our favorite things to talk about. My favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) So, although he, most of his life, did not work for scientific or educational fields, he does have some credibility. Like I said, he was a researcher. He did have a master's of science degree. So, although, obviously, he talks about controversial and not really scientifically supported things, he does have some level of education in those kind of things. Now, he had just published his book, The Case for the UFO, when he received letters from Carlos Miguel Allende. Honestly, it was really hard for me to find any concrete, for sure, background information on him. A lot of the information that you got on him happened after this theory became popularized and he became more of a public figure. But 
we know that he's not like a made up person. Okay. <laughs> we do know who, that he's it's him. And did you find any of the letters? Yes, there is like published. You can read the, a lot of the stuff that he did send back and forth. Okay, so it's like concrete stuff. Yes, just, so it's okay. not like these are just made up letters for. I mean, it might have been for publicity on Allende's side, but Je- Jessup did receive them. Okay. Now he had had several correspondences back and forth between the two. And he had such specific information about Navy happenings and specific people and things that would have been happening at the time that he definitely did have some kind of role, connection, or job within the Navy or in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Now, the letter stated that Allende had seen experiments happening in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Now, these letters, with nearly 50 of them being sent back and forth in total, are truly some of the only evidence that we have, because like I said, it's not a well-documented theory. So, of course, it's hard to believe based on that alone, but the story itself is fascinating to hear. Now, Allende claimed that the experiments he witnessed were because of the government trying to perfect the unified field theory. Now, I'm not going to go (laughs) really into that theory because... It's like an Einstein theory. It's a physics thing. Yeah. Not my cup of tea. (laughs) Not really good at that. But what I did get about it, basically a lot of people know it as the theory of everything. And now Allende claimed to know all about it because he claimed that Einstein himself had taught him about it. Mm. So, you know, this guy's a little (laughs) far-fetched. It seems to me that the basics of the theory is that electromagnetic and other fundamental forces run in duality of each other and basically unite into one force. Like, you know, the theory of everything. Get it? (laughs) Yes. But this is kind of irrelevant. It's just, this is the reason that Allende sent the letters to Jessup, because Jessup had written about this theory when speaking about extraterrestrial life in his past books. Okay. And kind of used it as help for evidence that those things existed. Can you find his books now or no? Yeah, you can. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, he has more. This was the book that, like, had these letters get sent to him, but he did right before this, and he did right after that. Okay. Now, I'm going to get into how he died a little bit later on. It was probably a suicide. Okay. So, but we'll get into that a little bit. Now, Allende claimed to have witnessed a green-blue glow surrounding the ship, the USS Eldridge, and then witnessed it vanish into thin air. He also claimed that he believed this included the officers on the ship and stated that they might have suffered grave consequences, such as being stuck in a comatose state or even becoming part of the ship itself. He claimed that after the ship vanished, vanished, it had reappeared in a dock in Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, and then a few minutes after appeared again in normal condition, like, Mm. you know, you could see it again, back in its original dock in Philadelphia. He claimed to have witnessed this experience for the first time on a nearby ship. So he said that he was on just a ship that was in the yard nearby. Now, after Jessup continuously asked Allende for real physical evidence of these occurrences, and Allende was not able to give any, Jessup almost completely gave up on pursuing these claims. However, Jessup soon after received a package from the Office of Naval Research in Washington, D.C., or at least it was labeled as such. Now, that's a legit office if it's really from them so like you know you have to take into account the validity of that office now the package turned out to be an annotated copy of his book the case for the ufo with writing in it from someone called jemmy or yemi it's written in so i don't really know how to pronounce it it's (laughs) just a written in name and two other people going under the name mr a and mr b okay 
The three basically go about stating the truth and falsities in the book, speaking about different types of aliens that exist, one friendly and one not so friendly, and use many other words and vocabulary that would be used when describing extraterrestrial life, such as mothership Hmm. and space and words like that. So basically they were claiming that either possibly they were writing it as if they were aliens themselves or if they knew about extraterrestrial life and was just kind of correcting the book for what was true and what was wrong. These are three real people writing this? Well, it's widely believed that at least one of these annotators is Allende. Okay. While most people believe that he might have just been all three, however, it is possible that it's possible that it was him and two other people. It's possible that it wasn't him. Yeah. But the handwriting, it makes... Uh, even Jessup thought that at least one of the people was Allende based on the handwriting. Okay. Now, I also found someone named Al Bielik, who claimed to have been present during the events that Allende is speaking about. He claims that Allende's version of events are very accurate to what actually happened that day. However, he says that the purpose of these experiments was not invisibility and teleportation, but time travel. Is now, Al, sorry, is Al like, um, do we know anything about him? I mean, we do know that he was really, a he's a real person. Okay. He's not like someone using a... <laughs> Alias? Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. a real person. Um, and he does claim to have worked in the Navy. Okay. So he is, he's done interviews and things like that. So, I mean, is he an educational person or like <laughs> what level in the Navy did he work in? We don't know. Okay. But it's not a completely just made up person. Now... I really honestly have to say, take his part with a huge grain of salt, as it is pretty outlandish, but he did claim to end up in various different spots in the future, because remember he said that he was on the ship when these experiments were happening. Yes. Now, it's also worth noting that a film centered around the idea of the Philadelphia Experiment came out in the late 1980s, and Al came forward in 1990, and his account greatly compares similarly to the film. Okay. So, you know, it is possible that he just oh, saw just the film, the film and, made and it. just said that it happened to him in real life. Yeah. However, he it seemed to be that he took the stance of he had, like, suppressed memories and the film, like, recalled them okay. for him and, like, brought that to the forefront. So that's why he says, basically, it took so long for him to come out and speak out about it. Side note, time travel confuses me so much. Like, yeah. I understand it, but it just doesn't... It still confuses me. Well... <laughs> The one topic in physics that I actually enjoy yeah. is, like, dimensions kind of thing. Yeah. So I think this is such a sidebar, but <laughs> if time travel actually ever did happen, I don't think that it would affect, like, our dimension, quote-unquote. Yeah. Like, it would kind of just branch off into its own that makes sense. thing if you ever change the past or change the future. That's crazy. You know what I mean? Oh, oh, yes. That does make sense. You know how, like... I never I, thought of it like, like that. I watched, I think it was on The Cosmos, the okay. TV show The Cosmos, when... If you if you go through a black hole, like the time period on Earth is like could be back in World War Two, mm-hmm. but like since because of where you are, like the time is different. Okay, that makes sense. Because I never thought time about is that. like spaced out, like real space. Yeah. So yeah, so, so <laughs> completely side note. So yeah, that's basically he claimed to be in several different years. They were very very far in the future that he was talking about. Um, he said that. Uh, government didn't really exist. The world population was greatly shrank. Like there was like cloud cities, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Very like Star Trekky kind of <laughs> yeah. vibe to the future. He claims. <laughs> now someone else came forward in the early 1990s, named Edward Dungeon. He claimed to have worked in the Philadelphia Navy Yard in the summer of 1943, so right around when the experiment would have been happening, and was an electrician 
so he had full knowledge of any classified devices that would have been on board the ship at the time. He claimed that the devices that Allende may have been referring to in his letter were used to create a technique known as degaussing. This means that the ship would have been wrapped up in electrical wires that rendered the ship invisible on nearby enemy radars, not completely invisible. Okay. So it still would be the idea that they're trying to become undetectable. It just would have been just for enemy ships. They wouldn't have actually become invisible. He also said that the ship's sudden appearance in Virginia may have been the result of secret passages and canals that the Navy used during the time to make trip times that would normally take days only take hours. So these secret passages... Although, obviously, it doesn't mean they snapped their finger and it appeared mm-hmm. in Virginia. It could have cut the time of travel a lot. Also, in 1999, a group of sailors that would have been on the ship in 1943 held a reunion in Atlantic City, because, of course, <laughs> and claimed that the ship was never in Philly during the alleged time period of the experiment. And the pro- they provided daily ship logs to try and prove this. Okay. Obviously, they're the ones that provided it. You can't 100% that kind of thing, but... You know, they did have these logs that kind of showed that they would not have been affiliated at the time. Now, it does appear that Allende, after people looked into him, after identifying him as the source of letters, because like I said, as it became more popular, more people wanted to see what the source was coming from. He has been very much discredited. Um, a lot of people allude to his mental illnesses. Obviously, you cannot confirm 100% that he had those. Yeah. Um, he is described as kind of like a floater, like hermit kind of figure. So most people believe that he might have just come up with all this as a hoax. But it is really fascinating that something that happened in 1943 has survived this long. Definitely. And, I mean, that's all the basic information I have on what they believe happened for the experiment. But like I said before, this experiment and this fairly one of the first sci-fi based experiments is really has led to a lot of the other ones that I'm going to end up talking about on the show. Cause I'm hundred percent going to talk about the Montauk project. And there's a bunch of other ones that are either extraterrestrial in nature mm-hmm. or just unexplainable yeah. that I want to get into. And this was really the first of those to become popular. And I also think that this one, like I said, there was a movie on it. There's been a ton of books and stuff about it. It kind of shows the power that media has on making a conspiracy theory really popular. Definitely, I'm also interested to read the uh, like letters and stuff that was in his books, or to read um to read that guy's books. Yes, the ones that he like the book and the annotations that he received from the naval offices, those are available to read, and a lot of just documented things when the government was kind of looking at this conspiracy theory. A lot of those papers are available to the public. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Tune in every Friday for more mystery and madness. Bye, queens.